The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Today we are provided another opportunity to demonstrate the wisdom of God in giving us the Bible the way that He has given it to us, as well as to demonstrate the benefit that comes to God's people by looking at all of the Bible and not skipping any parts of it. The benefits that come from refusing to edit the Bible. Now, when I talk about editing the Bible, I'm referring to a tendency among some Christians to do exactly that. Uh, Not the way that Thomas Jefferson did it. You know, Thomas Jefferson literally took a penknife to the Gospels and he cut out the things that he didn't like that were there about the miraculous things that Jesus did because he wanted to provide a Bible that just really got and preserved at the heart of who Jesus is. So he actually published his Bible, called it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now that kind of editing is obvious, it's arrogant, it's irreverent, and it's not something that I would be too fearful that most of us would be guilty of doing. The kind of editing that I'm talking about is more often practiced by simply skipping over parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. You know, the things that we really don't want to think about, the things that maybe even make us a bit squeamish. You know, the parts of the Bible that talk about seduction and rape, murder, mutilation, all of which are coming up in our study of the book of Judges. It's there. Some things even that cause us to question God. When we read about God doing things that just don't make sense to us, or doing things in ways that seem to be out of character with what we think God ought to be like and how He ought to work. Like the time that He raised up a left-handed assassin to kill an obese king. Have you ever heard that story? Heard about that story? Well, that's the message today. That's the part of God's Word we're looking at today. How many of you have ever heard a whole sermon on Ehud, the left-handed assassin? Raise your left hand. (laughs) Okay, maybe three, four of you. Well, the rest of us, together with me, are in for a treat, because I've never heard one either. But that's what we're going to look at, because that's the portion of God's Word that we've come to in our study consecutively through the book of Judges. So take a copy of God's Word and open to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's found on page 202. We're going to read from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter. The last verse gives us a little statement about another of the Judges, and we want to include that this morning. So hear the Word of God as I begin in Judges chapter 3, verse 12, to read it. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took position, possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. 
the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on, the right, on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him, and as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed under, over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and he locked them. When he'd gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. There, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. God saves undeserving people in unexpected ways. God saves undeserving people. And he does it in an unexpected way. The story of Ehud is bracketed by two other stories of two other judges. Othniel, that we looked at last week who is something of the ideal judge. He sets the template for all of the judges, the elements that we read in his story about himself, as well as the things he accomplished as they are summarized, provide for us all of the ingredients that we will see, some highlighted, some are not commented on in every story, for every era of every judge. He's the one that God set forth first in this book to give us an understanding of how this era of two to four hundred years in the life of Israel was carried out. The people sinned against God. God became angry with them in their sin. He raised up foreign powers to come and bring judgment, discipline upon them. The people cried out to God in their pain and sorrow. God was merciful, had pity upon them. He raised up a judge to deliver them. They were delivered and they had peace until the judge died. And then it started all over. People would go back to worshiping false gods and the cycle 
would continue. Well, we see that set forth in the brief few verses about Othniel. At the end of this chapter, on the other side of the bracket, is this Judge Shamgar. We don't know any more about him except what these few words say. that He also saved Israel, and he killed Philistines with a long stick that was used to guide oxen. He was a deliverer like the others, but his life, his story didn't make much of a headline in this account of the judges. The story of Ehud's work is far more fascinating and far more perplexing. This is a story that's filled with unlikely scenarios. We find Israel having been overtaken by an unlikely enemy. And then we see God raising up an unlikely man to be the deliverer from this enemy. And then we see this unlikely man delivering this unlikely people through a most unlikely procedure in an unlikely way. So let's look at the story beginning in verses 12, 13, and 14 where we see that God's people had become enslaved by an unlikely enemy. It's the Moabites. The Moabites. Now, these are people who we wouldn't have anticipated would conquer Israel. Why? Well, there's two very key reasons. The first is that they themselves were distant relatives to the Israelites. If you go back and read the history that is recorded for us in Genesis 19, you'll see that the Moabites are descendants from Abraham's nephew Lot. And so there's a connection in their relationships in the family of Abraham. But secondly, these Moabites didn't even dwell in the land of Canaan. That wasn't the boundary of their territories. Their land was on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan. When God led his people to the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan going west where the land of Canaan was. God had told the Israelites previously to leave the Moabites alone. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 2. He said, I'm not giving you their land, just let them be. And in fact, the first time that the Israelites passed through the land of Moab, Eglon's predecessor, a king by the name of uh, Balak, was so terrified of them that he tried to pay a false prophet by the name of Balaam to call down curses on them because he was sure that they were just going to overthrow him. But despite all this, despite all this, here we find the Israelites being enslaved by them for 18 years. Eglon, the king of the Moabites, had defeated them. And, as verse 13 says, to add insult to injury, he took captive the city of Palms. You remember what the city of Palms was? That's Jericho. It's the very first city that God gave to the Israelites when he led them into the land of promise to demonstrate his faithfulness and his power that he would be the one who would fight for them. Joshua cursed the city. Perhaps Eglon didn't know that curse or didn't care because he built his palace there and he administered his rule over the Israelites from Jericho. The Israelites, being under his rule, were required to pay tribute to him. So they have fallen prey to this foreign empire because of their sin. 
because they chased after the gods of the people around them. They were more attracted to the way of life of people who didn't know God than they were to being faithful to the way God, who had saved them, prescribed for them. But it's interesting that as God does throughout the book of Judges, in raising up another empire to come and to administer discipline to them, God would raise up the most unlikely of enemies in Moab. Moab. I mean, these are a people that the Israelites would have thought they don't even have to think about, much less be fearful of. The Moabites? Really? Yet, for 18 years, they were subjected to them. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a reminder to us, a warning to us. There can be things in our lives that we believe we have fully mastered. Areas of our lives that we think we've got under control, we think we don't have to worry about anymore, which if left unaddressed, can still wreak havoc on us if we're not diligent. Areas like sloth and deception, lust, gluttony. Any sin that you think maybe you've left behind in your prior life under the right conditions can creep back in and take us captive if we're not diligent to be humbly and dependently walking with our God. And that's exactly where the Israelites failed. They began to look around, be attracted by the things that their neighbors who didn't know the true God were doing and following after their ways of life. And as a result, they were enslaved 18 years by a very unlikely enemy. But secondly, we see in our text that God saved his people through an unlikely deliverer. Somebody that you and I wouldn't have picked. Somebody that arguments could be made even against serving in that capacity. Verse 15 really is the key verse in the whole story. It says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah. The Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people cried out in their misery. No indication here that they've repented of their sins, that they've come to their senses and turned away from their wrong way of living. They just cried out to God in their pain, in their sorrow. Eighteen years. They're weary. God had mercy on them. He raised up a deliverer for them, a man named Ehud whose dad is mentioned, and whose tribe is mentioned. He's a Benjamite, a rather insignificant tribe in the nation of Israel, as we will have illustrated in chapters 19, 20, and 21, a rather unreliable tribe as well. And then the author makes the point to tell us that Ehud was a left-handed man. Now, there's a bit of irony going on here. Because Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And Ehud is a left-handed son of the right hand. And so throughout this narrative, you get a hint of humor that the author is speaking with in terms of irony and subtlety of the way things actually happened. The phrase, a left-handed man, if we were to translate it literally from the Hebrew into the English, means the 
the right hand is shut up. Shut up or bound with regard to the right hand. And it indicates that perhaps Ehud was crippled in his right hand. That there was some type of defect, maybe a deformity that rendered his hand obviously useless. Now later, we do read in chapter 20, verse 16, about the Benjamites, that there were 700 of them who were skilled left-handed warriors. And that indicates they probably were trained to uh, use their left hands, which would have been valuable to be ambidextrous in battle, in warfare. But here, it seems best to understand Ehud as having some sort of deformity in his right hand. And it's important enough to the author of our text that he mentions this a second time, that Ehud fights with his left hand. So in verse 21, when he tells us how Ehud killed King Eglon, he makes a point to say he did it with his left hand. Now to the ancient Israelites, the right hand was very significant. It was a place of honor. It was a symbol of strength. We're told that God swears by his right hand in Isaiah 62. In Psalm 1611, we're told God has pleasures at his right hand. We're told in Psalm 110 that God establishes his chosen one at his right hand. The, the left hand in Old Testament scriptures is largely regarded as insignificant and sometimes even as a place of dishonor. Now when Ehud arises as Israel's deliverer, it's surprising because he's left-handed. And it's not incidental to the story. It's actually very instrumental in us understanding its point. If his right hand indeed was deformed, then the prospect of him being a competent warrior would have seemed slim to none. Nobody would have anticipated it. Everybody would have overlooked him and underestimated him. And yet, this is exactly the point. Because this is the way God works. It's the way he has worked throughout history time and time again. When he was determined to give his people, Israel, a man after his own heart, who did he give? Not a great warrior. He gave them a shepherd boy. When God determined to lead his people, he first humbled the man Moses for 40 years before preparing him in that to take them across the Red Sea out of the land of Egypt, leading them toward the land of promise. We're going to see this principle throughout the book of Judges. Time after time after time, God raises up people that are going to make us at points scratch our heads and say, I wonder why he chose him. Seems like that guy would be disqualified. This doesn't make complete sense. But God is making a point here about himself. About how he is the one who saves his people. As our story today makes very clear, Ehud was precisely suited to deliver Israel from the wicked king Eglon and the Moabites, and he was precisely equipped for that because of his weakness, because of his deformity. What appeared to be a disqualifying weakness, can't use your right hand, have to be 
left-handed, turned out to be the very asset that God employed to fulfill what he intended for his people. We'll see this as we continue in our text to look at what actually happened when Ehud went to Jericho, when he went to speak with King Eglon. Because not only was Ehud an unlikely deliverer, not only did he deliver his people from an unlikely enemy, but in verses 16 and following through the end of the chapter, we see how he did it. God's unlikely deliverer saved his people in an unlikely way. He made a special dagger, 18 inches long. He had a purpose in mind for this dagger, knowing the man that he was going to employ it on. And he strapped that dagger to his right thigh because he was left-handed so that he'd be able to cross his body and draw it out effectively. Now, this was contrary to the norm. This is not what normal soldiers would do. They would be the opposite. Using their right hand, they would strap their weapons to the left hand or to the left side of their bodies. So Ehud leads a coalition to Jericho. Verse 17 says to pay tribute to this king. Now notice in verse 17, it's interesting, God inspired the author of this book to make this little note about Eglon. It just simply says, he was a very fat man. Now, go back in the Hebrew language it was originally written in and understand exactly what that means. And here's what it means. He was a very fat man. And that's pretty instrumental in and pretty significant to what comes next in the story. Because after Ehud goes with his entourage, with the tribute, probably grain, offers it up to the king because he's the one who's repressing them, he's the one that's got them under his control, he goes back with his entourage, but he stops, and he sends them on his way, and he comes back to the king and says, King, I have a secret message for you from God. Well, the king's impressed. And so he dismisses his attendants, and he invites Ehud in. And Ehud, in the private assembly with the king, assassinates him. Look again at verse 21, 22, and 23. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now, he makes his escape. The servants of Eglon know he's gone, and they see the doors locked there, and they know the king's room has private quarters there they know there's a place for toileting there the text tells us that his intestines his colon released its contents his bowels released their content and so quite possibly they smelled that he was relieving himself so they back off he's a king we're his servants we're not going to interrupt him we're going to give him his privacy. And you just wait. You wait. It gets embarrassing. Do we go knock on the door? Do we ask him if he's okay? I mean, you imagine the conversations between those attendants. <laughs> Why don't you go 
check. <laughs> you know, no, I don't want to check. Until it became embarrassing, and they finally unlock the door. They go in, and what they discover is their king is dead. He's been assassinated. The one who's ruled over them, the one who's led them to this pretty good life in Cana, keeping captive under their sway, the Israelites. Well, Ehud escapes. He goes back to Ephraim. He sounds a trumpet. He gathers an army. He says, the Lord has delivered your enemies into your hand. The people of Israel rally to him. They go to the Jordan River where the Moabites would cross over, leaving the land that didn't belong to them, going back to their own homeland. And there they met them, and there they ambushed them. And the text says they killed 10,000 of these Moabite men. And then God gave rest to Israel for 80 years. It's a fascinating story. It's a story that you and I probably would not put in the Bible were we writing the Bible. But God has put it there for our benefit. Ehud was an unlikely deliverer who delivered the Israelites in an unlikely way. We might have expected, if he were raised up by God to deliver them, that he would first of all raise an army, get everybody together, and then storm Jericho, the city that they had taken before when they first came to the land of promise. But instead, this man devised a plan to destroy their leader first, on his own, and then rout their army. The story shows us that what should have been a drawback for Ehud was actually a strength. His left-handedness gave him an advantage. Most warriors wore their weapons on their left side so that they could draw with their right hands. And so the attendants of the king, looking at potential enemies, would just naturally have their eyes go to the left side of those enemies. And if they're wearing an outer cloak, you're looking for a print. You're looking to see, is there indication that there's a dagger? Indication that there is a sword there? The Moabite attendants responsible for the king's protection would have therefore not seen anything on Ehud's left side because his dagger was on his right thigh. Furthermore, imagine this, that if indeed Ehud's right hand was deformed, if it was crippled and he couldn't use it, and they're looking at him, protectors of the king, and they see no weapon over here, and they see his right hand unusable, then they probably think everything's okay. In fact, there's no way that he would have been given a private audience with the king if they weren't satisfied that he was not a threat. There's no way the king would have allowed him into a private audience if he was not convinced there was no threat. So God raised up this unlikely deliverer and used him to save an undeserving people in a most unexpected way. So what's the point? I mean, why is this in the Bible? Well, we see in this story elements of all the other judges that are raised up during this time in Israel's history. And God is teaching us things through this. He's teaching us things about himself, and he's teaching us things about his way of salvation for his people. God promised his people throughout all of the Old Testament history that he was going to save them from their sin and its consequences. This begins in Genesis chapter 3. 
there in the first garden with the first man and woman. You remember Genesis 3.15? After Adam and Eve had sinned, and by their sin and rebellion, invoked God's anger and judgment against them, ensuring that they and all of the human race that comes after them will be born in separation from God, will be born under condemnation of God's law. After that happened, when God is speaking curses, He curses the devil. And in the process, He says, I am going to raise up a seed from this woman, and He will come and crush your head. You'll bruise His heel, but He's going to crush you. The first promise. First promise in the Bible of a Savior. God's going to save His people. Sin and rebellion is not going to have the last say. We see this seed of the woman, this promised deliverer, being referred to throughout the rest of Old Testament history. The Savior, the Messiah, continues to be promised through the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that promise reiterated to Joseph when Joseph was used in the most unlikely of ways to save the progeny of Abraham alive, keeping them alive in famine by getting them to Egypt. We see the promise sustained through the 400 years of slavery that the Israelites had in Egypt as they cried out to God, remembering what He'd said to Abraham. We see the promise further reiterated when God raises up Moses to be a type of this Savior who would come demonstrating that he will indeed save his people from captivity. And Moses himself, being the recipient of God's revelation, establishes for his people a system of sacrifices and worship that day by day, week by week, month by month, season by season, year by year, every seven years, would remind them of their need of forgiveness. The need to have their sins paid for through a bloody atonement. And then... We see it in Joshua where God raised him up to be the captain of his armies, to be a type, a shadowy type, an anticipation of the Lord Jesus who was to be the Messiah, the Savior who would come to lead God's people out of the wilderness and plant them in the land of promise. And then we see it through the two to four hundred year period of judges where judge after judge is raised up to deliver God's people who keep going back to slavery, keep going back to bondage to sin, keep forsaking Him, keep turning away from Him, and God in mercy keeps coming to them to restore them. We see it in the monarchy when God raises up a king, the apple of His eye, a man after His own heart, David, and makes David a type of the one to come, and yet tells David, David, I'm going to give you a son. A son who will sit upon my throne of my kingdom forever. He'll never die. David died. Saying his last words, God's told me this is going to happen. It hasn't happened. Don't know how it's going to happen. But this is the promise of God. And then when that monarchy broke apart into the northern and southern kingdoms, God continued to carry out His promises through the southern kingdom of Judah by sending them prophets, reminding them of all that He had promised, calling them to turn back from sin, to return to the ways of God, to worship the God that had created them and sustained them and saved them in spirit and in truth. 
And then when Judah fell to Babylon and was taken captive for 70 years in that foreign empire and were humbled because the temple had been destroyed, the walls of the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, God, through that exile in Babylon, reminded them from prophets that His promise was still intact. It's going to be fulfilled. And He brings them back. The temple's rebuilt. Walls rebuilt. The city becomes repopulated. And then, God is silent. Sends no more prophets for 400 years. The people are taught by God to remember, to believe the things He's already said to them in His law, in His sacrificial system, in His prophets to remember and believe and look forward to the one who will come to save his people from their sin until God sends an angel named Gabriel to a peasant virgin young lady in Nazareth and says to her, you're blessed. God's chosen you. You're going to be the one to experience a miraculous conception. And you're going to be the one whose womb will carry the answer, the fulfillment to the promise God has made across all of the ages. Mary, with her betrothed Joseph, go to Bethlehem, not in a palace, but in a cow barn gives birth to the most unlikely Savior of all. A baby who grows up to do everything that God requires to be done for Him to be the adequate sacrifice, the atonement for the sins of His people. And then He leads His only begotten Son who became a man to the very pivotal moment of His life where Jesus stands before the imperial authorities of Rome and hears Pilate say, you're a king? You? And refusing to call the legions of angels who were waiting, ready to come at a moment's notice and destroy all of His enemies in a most unlikely way, submits Himself to the curses, to the ridicule, to the scorn, to the crucifixion inflicted upon him by those who thought they were in control. And through that death on the cross, when it looked like utter foolishness, utter defeat, complete Failure. God was saving His people from our sin. In a way that you and I would never have devised. In a man who had no beauty about him, the prophet says. Nothing in him that would cause us to ooh and ah and say yes. This has got to be the Messiah. But a man who grew up in a carpenter's home. 
A man who rather than choosing an army to go and carry out his establishment of his kingdom chose 12 common laborers and taught them and built his church upon them. So we see in Jesus the fulfillment of everything that Ehud began to kind of point toward. An unlikely Savior who saves His people in a very unexpected way. And He does it through His brokenness so that we might be healed. He does it through His weakness so that we might be made strong. He does it through His death so that by His death we might live. This is the way of God's salvation. Ehud is a faint shadow of Jesus Christ. For the ancient Israelites, Ehud pointed the way forward to one who would come to be this Savior. For us today, brothers and sisters, he points us backward to look at Jesus who has come and done everything to save his people from our sins by his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Friend, I wonder if you're here today and to you, Jesus has been little more than a superstition that you've kind of tipped your hat toward and acknowledged. Maybe some of your friends, maybe even your spouse really believes. But you look at the story of Jesus and you think, I may have had relevance hundreds or thousands of years ago, but today it just seems to be completely disconnected from our modern world. If that's true, hear what God says to you. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. Because God himself has said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will take the discernment of the discerning and thwart. So where is the wise person? Where is the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in its wisdom the world did not know God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Sophisticated Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to religious Jews. It's Foolishness to educated Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you're ignoring Jesus Christ today, if you have settled in your mind some little compartment that allows you to have him as a religious figure of a bygone error, hear this. He's the only Savior this world has. He's the one who from eternity God determined would come into the world to save sinners. He's the one throughout the whole Old Testament era He promised He would come. Yes, He came as an unexpected Messiah. Not the way the Jews of the first century looked for Him to be. They were waiting for another commander to come and wipe out Rome. Crucified? Savior? Through that crucifixion, God was doing His deepest work of salvation. He was taking the sins of His people, placing them upon His Son, pouring out wrath that 
we deserve because of our sin so that by His Son's death that wrath might be carried away and the provision of forgiveness and new life could become ours. And if you're not trusting Jesus in this way, if you don't see Him in this way, then friend, I, I need you to think seriously. I want you to think seriously about this because the God who saves does it through an unexpected Savior and He does it in an unexpected way. And I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever in my mind, there's some of you here today and you're thinking, well, I know I need to do better. I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I, I know that I need to change. I know, and, and so you're just thinking like, oh, I just got, I got to do this, I got to do this. No. God saves sinners in an unexpected way. It is to all who believe. It's faith. Faith. Faith plus nothing. Trust. It's not do. It's not promise. It's not clean up your act. Clean up your life a little bit, then come to God. It's where you are. Believe that this God has provided this Savior for every sinner who will trust Him. And I plead with you, trust Him today. Trust Him now. He'll save you. Where you are, as you are, you, you don't have to go to a class. You don't have to get baptized. You, you don't have to sign a piece of paper. From your heart, call out to this Savior, the Lord Jesus, and say, save me. Save me. Turn your life over to Him. Live by faith in Him. He'll save you. Brothers and sisters, we need to see the significance of all of this. What is God saying to those of us who are trusting this most left-handed of all deliverers, Lord Jesus? God's teaching us something about Himself, and He's teaching us something about us. And consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in his presence. Just take a look around. I mean, aren't we a bunch of left-handed assassins? <laughs> you know? I mean, what do we bring to the table? There wasn't anything in us that God saw. It's, oh, yeah, I want that guy on my team. God comes to an unlikely people and gives up his son as an unlikely savior to save us in an unlikely way. It's because of God that we're in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus is the one who became for us wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He works in surprising ways to fulfill His eternal purposes. He's able to use a left-handed assassin to deliver His ancient people from the Moabites. And brothers and sisters, He is able to use you with all of your unique disqualifications in your mind to fulfill His purposes here and now. And 
He's able to use the most unlikely instruments to fulfill His purposes in your life. Instruments like sickness. Like brokenness. Broken relationships. Shattered dreams. Uncertainty. The God who used a Roman cross to accomplish the redemption of His people can and will use every situation in your life to see that the redemption that Jesus once for all time did accomplish is applied in ways that will guarantee your ultimate, complete conformity to Him. He will do it. He has promised. And He has secured it through the life and death and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank You for the story of Ehud, for the surprises that we find in that portion of Your Word. You working in ways that we would not have anticipated, doing what we would not have done, showing Yourself to be faithful, Strong, determined not to let any promise fall to the ground unfulfilled. Help us, each one today, to trust in Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.